Okay, trying to get myself back to doing these. Uh, took a couple days off. The truth is I've found it kind of intense to do this work psychologically. Whew. And um, I also get kind of antsy about sounding like an idiot. But the truth is I'm sincere. I'm trying. I'm learning. So I got to remember... I would like to presume my audience is very forgiving. So if you're not, GTFO. Okay. Um, I'm going to talk about Enneagram 1 today while I do this. It's really hard for me to imagine what kind of an audience would be interested in this, but... But I know there are other people who are, like, very similar to me. There's probably, like, if you, if you think about it statistically, there's probably hundreds of people in the world who are almost exactly like you. Because if you think about how similar you are to, like, maybe one or two people that you know, like, you, you're quite a bit different, but you're somewhat similar. Like, in Myers-Briggs terms, I've known an ESTP with whom I have a lot in common. I'm an ENTP. I've known an INFJ or two with whom I have a lot in common. We seem to kind of mirror each other from different sides of the intuitive universe. Um, you know, I have a lot in common with some ENFPs I meet. Um, and then there's like, from an Enneagram perspective, I'm in type one. Uh, I have a lot in common with my ISFJ father, who's an Enneagram type one, I think. Um, I have a lot in common with a lot of ISFJs that I see. Uh, I see myself sort of like growing toward their the things they do easily in some ways okay so if you think about that's you know i only know a couple thousand people like not that i can remember but i mean i've only like gotten to know including the hundreds of kids i went to school with in high school and the hundreds of kids i ran into in college or in my work i've only really consciously met a couple thousand people in my life and i've met people who look almost exactly like me once or twice and I've met people who are quite a bit like me. So if you think about in 8 billion people, there's probably hundreds, which is not very many, but like not, not a high percentage, it's a tiny, tiny fragment, but it's actually a large quantity of individuals. There's probably hundreds of internet-connected people who are like exactly like me, <coughs> who have a really similar worldview or a really similar mental processing. So that's who this is for. Um, I've had a few of you that I've run into in previous, like, podcasts that I've made that no one really knows about or listens to, or blogs that I've written. I literally had someone reach out to me on a blog I forgot I made a while ago, where I offered to do some consulting and stuff, and at a ridiculously cheap rate, I shouldn't have done that. So luckily, they didn't respond to my response to their inquiry. I was like, sure, let's do it, even though I was like, I should not do this for this rate, but... I was just thinking it would be fun to talk to him. And it was, you know, like a 26-year-old ENTP girl. I think that there are a lot of people in their early adulthood, but, you know, over 25, who are ENTP-type folks who could relate to some of my shit. So, anyway, I'm particularly intrigued lately by the Enneagram, and I want to explain something. So, it's 2021... 
I've been studying Myers-Briggs typology at a pretty serious level since like 2015-ish. Um, and I mean, there's a lot of people who know a lot about this stuff, but pretty regularly, pretty regularly, I hear people summarizing Myers-Briggs stuff incorrectly. And very rarely do I meet people who understand it in as much detail as I do. And of course, the people from whom I've learned it understand it better than I do. But I guess what I'm saying is that I think I'm in one of the, I'm like in the top percentile or couple percentile. Of, you know, you take 100 people who say they know what Myers-Briggs is, 80 of them are going to literally almost know nothing really about it. And then the top 20% are going to know quite a bit about it. And I think I'm in the very top percentiles of understanding the model, the theory, and having studied it broadly and having studied socionics, the Russian, like a lot of Russian perspectives on Jungian psychoanalytical thought about, you know, about type, having read uh, not a lot of the deep type book, typology books, but I have read uh, a bunch of stuff by Jung um, and uh, having like really come to think hard about eight function model, four function model. You know, I think of myself as a, when I say ENTP, I picture a, a dominant inferior uh, relationship between extroverted intuition and introverted sensing and an auxiliary tertiary relationship between introverted thinking and extroverted feeling. I picture a, what socionics would call, I believe the super ego, or actually they might call it the id block, the id block, which would be extroverted thinking for me and introverted intuition. Um, what John Beebe calls the, uh, I believe he calls those the critic and the, another person who follows John Beebe's model is C.H. Uh, Joseph on YouTube, a very kind of quirky character, um, and a little bit of like a, you know, he, uh, it's going to sound mean, but I think he's like an ENTP with sort of average intelligence, and so he comes across as pretty arrogant and a little like sexist. I'm not saying there's no value in talking about like um masculinity as a benefit, but the way he kind of seems to think, I sometimes think is like a little bit off. Um and that's being generous. <laughs> and I say that as a guy who's not particularly like woke. I'm I'm a real moderate like dude with a appreciation for um history and for you know, I'm I'm not yeah, I don't trade in, like, the currencies of social justice at all, you know, so, but I do, uh, I do, I do believe that there are, s let's see, where, where do you put me on the spectrum? I think Jordan Peterson is a, is, um, a fool, <laughs> because I think his logic, like, I, or, or, not a fool, actually, but I think that he is, um, reckless, I think he's a sensor, not an intuitive, who's way too in the intuition of his, and he's like, he's not leaning on his strengths. I think he's an ISFJ, who's always in his tertiary um, introverted thinking and his inferior extroverted intuition. And I just don't think he's, I, I returned his book, 12 Rules for Life. I think it's really weak. It's one of the only audible books I've ever returned. Um, but I know a lot of people, who, I know some people I really respect who really respect Jordan Peterson. I also have friends who are, like, who think he is definitely fueling white supremacy, and I think that he is um, 
reckless about the way that he's fueling white supremacy, even though I have a little bit of like a hard line about the fact that, you know, he still has the right to do whatever he wants. I just, I, 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 the problem is that his logic is bad sometimes. And he's sort of like stands on a pedestal of logic, but it's actually bad logic sometimes. He makes logical leaps. Specifically, he'll be like, okay, so four times three is not 12, it's, it's 11, but assume, uh, but, or it's not, it's not 11, it's 12. We all know that. But assume it's like about, about 11 for just a second, just for the sake of argument, let's say it's 11, okay. And then 11 times two, we know that's about 22, but let's just call it 20 for simplicity, okay. So given that it's 20, then if you add six to it, you know, it's about 25. Let's just, you know, and, and therefore we can say that times four, we're at 100. And that's like his conclusion, and you're like, wait, but you just fudged the numbers on every step of your logical argument? And then he starts building this kind of like white supremacist argument on top of that 100, on top of his flawed stepwise argument. And that's my problem with Jordan Peterson, is he makes little teeny uh, errors, and he concedes them. He's like, granted that I know what I'm saying is an assumption, but follow me, follow me, follow me. Well, when you do that with someone, when you say, hey, so grant me this for a minute, you have a, like a rhetorical responsibility to return to why, like to make an argument for the sake of argument, and then to explain how that applies to reality. Since you made the argument itself separate from reality, you made the argument on the basis of an, an assumption that we all know is not true, four times three is not 11, 11 times two is not 20, and 20 plus 6 is not 25, but we all granted that for the sake of argument. You have a responsibility to then return and explain why the conclusions that apply if 4 times 3 was 11, 11 times 2 was 20, and 20 plus 6 is 25, why the conclusions remain the same in a reality where 4 times 3 is 12, 12 times 2 is 24, and 24 plus 6 is 30, and 3 times, or 4 times 30 is 120, so we're off by 20%. Like, why does the conclusion still apply? He never does that last step. So he sets these things up for the sake of argument, and then by, and then suddenly halfway through the chapter, he's like, therefore, like, Western society is being destroyed by decadence and uh, this and that. I don't believe that Jordan Peterson is, um, like, uh, inherently, uh, I don't think he's a, let me see, I don't think he's a bad guy the way that, like, uh, well, that's not true. I do think he's rhetorically irresponsible, but I just think he's in over his head. I just think he's not that smart of a guy. And people mistakenly think he's smart, but he's actually not. So that tells you that I'm, like, you know, I'm not, like, um, I'm left of center, you know, uh, but I, I consider myself sort of right of center because I'm default, like, I have a perspective about work, responsibility, um, and the tendency, like, I think it's better for people to suffer sometimes. I think that hunger is a good motivator. You know, those are all very, like, Republican, American Republican ideas, that it's okay to let people be hungry because that'll motivate them to work. I mean, that's a really harsh way to put it, but I guess what I'm saying is for me, it's been beneficial to suffer the, my own consequences and to not be bailed out. And I believe that that's actually good for people in aggregate. And I don't always think that, um, it's, so I've come to be very conservative about social, uh, safety nets. And I'm also, um, just very, very suspicious of the left as much as I am of the right. So, you know, ultimately if, a moderate Republican ran against a moderate Democrat, I would vote for the moderate Republican. Um, you know, like if a non-racist, uh, non-hateful uh, um, 
hateful person ran for Republican for president, I'd, they'd probably have my vote, like a John Huntsman or a, frankly, even a Mitt Romney, I'd probably vote for him again. I didn't vote for him last time because I really liked Obama, but I would vote for a Mitt Romney if he ran again because I think that his perspectives are reasonable. And I think he has a certain amount of, like, integrity, and that might be false, and I might be biased because I grew up Mormon. Um, but as an ex-Mormon, I don't think my biases are, are simple. Like, I see the, the negatives of Mormonism, too. Um, but I do think he has some integrity. So, um, I'm also not at all anti-billionaire, like, not even a little bit. I respect Jeff Bezos and what he's done, and I think he's an incredible human. Um, I don't care. Like, I, I, I really don't buy into this, like, anti-wealth, anti-business perspective on the left at all. And I think they significantly underestimate the... They, they really misunderstand... You know, I, I have... I've had two, argue, two discussions with people in my life. One was 12 years ago. I was talking to a journalist for the Tampa Bay Times, and I was at a dinner party... And he was saying, you know, I'm a, I'm a Democrat. And he's like, so, you know, I care about money. But Republicans, they, like, really care about money. And then a couple years ago, I was talking to a conservative friend of mine. He's young. He's, like, a young Christian. And he's a cons- Christian conservative. But he's, he's a pretty good guy. He's got some real blind spots, I think, with the not thinking about how systemic racism occurs and stuff. He's one of those people who thinks... See, like, I I don't think that systemic racism isn't real. I think it's very real. I also just kind of think that, like, um, there's no... there's, There's no, like, easy fix, and I'm not ashamed of my privilege, I guess you could say. I'm just kind of, like not particular like I don't spend any energy trying to virtue signal that I'm woke because I'm not very woke I'm just like well like yeah life like is easier for me in certain ways um because of my race and and I'm glad (laughs) glad it is I'm not basically like I, I what I don't believe is that there's a possibility of uh like leveling it so that everyone has a fair world so I just see it as a power struggle and I'm like more power to the people that want to fight for power but it is going to take a certain amount of power away from me so I'm not going to join the cause I'm just going to kind of see how it plays out and meanwhile I can feel myself losing certain little bits of power here and there and that's like well that's a bummer because losing power sucks um and I don't necessarily think that the outcome will be that everyone is in a better world. Not at all. I think the outcome will be pretty much the same as it is now, but I think it will be better for some people and worse for others. And I think it'll be a little bit worse for like my kids relative to how it used to be for them and a little bit better for like young children of color or a lot better. And so, but I don't, I don't see a perspective of like, we need to evaluate whether that trade off is worth it. Cause I'm like, look, power corrupts and power corrupts classes and races too so it's not gonna it's there's not it's not like um i I don't think that there's like a way like there's no moral high ground in my perspective there's just like it's just like a weather a weather pattern of uh power structures competing against each other and um and there's certainly some major major sins being committed on the left right now um particularly by like woke white people let's be honest so okay um which you can hear anytime you talk to your friends of color you can hear how they like there's a weird sort of energy among white woke people that freaks them out and and that's why they're more comfortable with like 
even sincere ignorant people or sincere like um edgy people like me who are not trying to signal that we're anything other than we are my friends of color are pretty comfortable with me because they're like that guy's legit you know we don't agree on everything but i know he's not like i don't feel like he's trying to sneak into my bed or something weird (laughs) so okay um so all that said um I know a lot about the Enneagram or no, I know a lot about Myers-Briggs, but I don't know a lot about the Enneagram. And I always have thought it was just bullshit. Um, I can't even remember right now why I got off on that huge fucking tangent. I've got a lot of like energy that I need to spill out. So bear with me, audience of zero. Um, I, okay. So I'm going to pause and think for a second. (sighs) why I felt the need to place myself on an ideological spectrum. I think I was thinking that it was some effort to explain I think I'm just trying to explain kind of my goals, my perspective. Um, so Yeah, okay. I don't know. I have no idea. No idea, but what I'd like to do is talk about um, having read so much about Myers-Briggs. I'm a huge fan of it, and I can type people pretty accurately all the time when I meet them. I'm pretty good at that now. That took a long time, by the way. I think, I don't I don't know why, but I was kind of weak at that at first. I've gotten a lot better at it now. Um, and then, uh, but the Enneagram, I always like very, very much tried to study it just as much as Myers-Briggs and it always turned me off because I, I honestly, I wrote it off like nine times because it just felt so nonsense. I, 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 I came up with these alternative theories as to why people liked it. One of them was that like, it was like the secret way for Christians to talk about pop psychology at work. Like another theory was that it appeals to sensors in the Myers-Briggs type and it doesn't appeal to intuitives, but for some reason it's like simpler for sensors to understand the Enneagram. Therefore it's very popular. But what I could never see is how there was any real like at the bottom value in there comparable to Myers-Briggs. I just couldn't see it because Myers-Briggs, I can see a really easy systemic relationship between like the types, the functions, the models, how they impact behavior, how they, and, and, and a path to growth which a lot of people in the Enneagram, I think, mistakenly say Myers-Briggs lacks. I don't think Myers-Briggs lacks a path to growth because the growth is to develop your auxiliary function, your tertiary function eventually, your in- integrate your inferior function. It's just that they don't study it hard enough to understand that. So they're like, it said I'm an extrovert. It's putting me in a box. It's like so stupid. Anyway, so, um, so Myers-Briggs would tell me to work on my introverted thinking most of all in my auxiliary, just which is like, radical honesty with myself getting like into harsh realities of getting rid of my concerns over extroverted feeling what other people think of me stuff like that how other people are perceiving me well so with Enneagram I mean I've I've got books on it I've got all kinds of stuff and I just never found any value in it I always kind of felt like when I would talk about Myers-Briggs to someone they'd be like oh have you heard of Enneagram I always felt like it was someone it was like I was saying to someone like yeah, like, um, 
you should read these great books by Dostoevsky. And they'd be like, oh, have you heard of Harry Potter? And I'm like, what the fuck? No, I'm talking about good literature here, and you're bringing up Harry Potter. That's how I felt when I was talking about Myers-Briggs and they'd bring up Enneagram. felt like that. And then I'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, Enneagram. <laughs> but in the last week and a half or so, since I started uh, doing this podcast, I... I have come to find value in the Enneagram for the first time after six years. And that is by finding my actual number. And I think the reason it took me so long to find my number is because I mistakenly just assumed that that there had to be a correlation between Myers-Briggs types and Enneagram types. And I've come to believe that that is completely false. So... I blow my nose. So, if so, I, I mean that. I mean that. I think there is no correlation between Myers Briggs and Enneagram types. And almost, she's like almost nobody believes that. Although I can say that the people who I most respect in the Myers Briggs world, they don't believe that. Now the Enneagram people don't believe it, but that's only because they don't understand Myers Briggs. But a lot of the people that understand Myers-Briggs just kind of assume that, like, Enneagram is sort of like a different perspective on the same thing, so there's going to be correlation. I think there's not correlation. I haven't figured out the mechanism for why, but I've come to understand my INFJ friends, my INTJ friends, and myself as an ENTP better by releasing the idea that there's a correlation. So... I've realized that, like, me and one of my INTJ guy friends, I think we have in common that we're both Enneagram 1. And that's one of the reasons that we get away around, we get along in a certain kind of way. I think my girlfriend, who's an INFJ, I always assumed that she was, like, a type 4 just because I thought there was some overlap there. But she's not at all. She's a type 6, and she realized this recently, and that makes so much more sense. And I thought type 6 were, like, only sensor types. I thought type 1s were only introverted sensors like ISTJs and ISFJs. I thought I had to be probably a 7 that almost every extroverted type, uh, extroverted perceivers, ESPs and ENPs, were type 7, basically, seeking freedom. And then, but I didn't really see anything of value in type 7 for me. Nothing that felt like truly core to who I am. It was all like just yeah it's just not really ultimately me and um i also found it troubling that like 37 percent of the population is e extroverted perceivers and so like 37 percent of like people being in one enneagram type is just kind of crazy to me like that kind of feels like uh uh unlikely <clears throat> that doesn't make sense if you have only nine types it shouldn't be that disproportionate. Um, so, so I had read seven, and then I'd I'd been told that there's no correlation by enneagram people. So I was like, all right, I'm, maybe I'll maybe I'm a five because I'm a little bit more introverted and or like I am. Uh, I really like to learn. I really like to observe things. Type fives are like the observer. So I read all about the five. I was like, okay, yep, this, this is me. But really, it was just a lot better than the seven. It was closer than the seven. But as I listened more and more to the type five, 
I started to realize more and more that like it really isn't me you know it just isn't I'm not that's not me I don't actually withdraw as a as a strategy I don't do that <clears throat> and as I and then I, I tried reading about type six so what we're doing there is five six and seven are the head types that's just what made most sense to me those possibilities and six didn't I didn't relate to and and then I read about all the subtypes, the sexual and the social and the, um, and I realized that whatever I am, I'm a self-preservation, uh, repressed. And I thought I might be a social five and I read about that and I thought I'm, but it wasn't right, quite right either. And so I just kept dropping it. And then I went and read about type three. Well, I did that a long time ago because the uh, woman who runs Personality Hacker Podcast, who I really respect, is an ENTP type 3. And I th- a long time ago, I was like, well, this could be me. I mean, I care about, like, um, achieving or whatever. But I, as I studied type 3, I realized that wasn't true for me. Um, and I'd even read about type 4, I believe. So I was like, oh, my gosh. You know, I'm definitely not, like, a, a 9. I know I'm not an... Oh, and I'd read type 8. But I know I'm not, I, I, I read 8 because I, I knew as a little kid that I was extremely, like, aggressive and violent and physical, and my mom said I was always so frustrated all the time that the world, like, didn't let me kind of have things the way I wanted them or whatever, and I just thought it sounded kind of 8-ish. So I was like, maybe I've just been, like, fucked up in my life, so I'm not living as my 8-ness. But that wasn't true either, because I worked with an 8, and I started to realize how they operate. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, like, I could see the difference between her and me. So, you know, I, I realized, like, okay, this Enneagram stuff's nonsense. I'd read everything except for 9, 1, and 2, basically. 3, 4, 5, six, yeah. I knew I wasn't a 2. That's, like, super obvious to me. Because <laughs> they, like, help other people, and that I don't do that. Um... So, and then I read a little bit about nine just because, just for fun to see kind of what those people are like, and I knew that wasn't me either. So, literally, the only one I hadn't studied was like one. And because it always struck me as like the most boring and the least like me, it really did seem like the least comprehensible to me. Because it said they were like policy driven and holding things to a standard and all this stuff. And I was like, no, I'm always looking for a new way to do stuff, I'm always breaking all the standards and I was trying to find a loophole and stuff like that. And then, uh, I heard a podcast about an INTP who thought he was a five and discovered he was a one and explained kind of what that looked like. And I realized that that could be me. So I started reading ones chapters in all the books I have that I'd always basically skipped. And I realized that the common Enneagram one description is basically a description of an introverted sensor who is a type one and that you could be any other Myers-Briggs type and be a type one, but you would, you would show up differently. So what I mean by that is like an ISTJ who works in a government office and is a type one is going to be like, these are the rules. These are the procedures. I follow them exactly because that's the best way to do it. If we all follow the rules, everything will go smoothly. If everyone would follow the rules, we wouldn't have all these problems. But an ENTP type one is going to say, this is what people have been doing. I can, I know what I can, they're going to have a vision for an ideal that's very different from what already exists. It's going to be like a theoretical vision of an ideal. 
just like the type one has an ideal vision of how things could be working like based on the rules as they are the entp has an ideal vision of how things could be working that's a more systemic perspective it's more system based it's more theoretical and it's more sort of like inventive in the way that it's like it doesn't it's they're going to assume the entp is going to assume that the best way doesn't exist yet but they still assume there is a best way and they always think that they should be working toward it so i never have any of my own ideas i'm only like an editor of other people's stuff or you know i can't write fiction writing i can only write non-fiction that's like taking other ideas and then uh like putting them together in new and different ways to build the best possible argument but it's always in this world where I do have this black and white perspective that like we're either making this worse or better. And if everyone would get on board with these new perspectives, then we can attain more perfection. We can become better. And like it's, it's actually the exact same type of uh, alignment toward reforming and perfecting that an ISTJ would have, but their like guiding light might be the procedures that are in place because that is a stand-in for them of perfection. Whereas an ENTP's guiding light is going to be this theoretical model that they have kind of started to see rise in their head, which represents the perfection of the existing processes but that unencumbered by the realities of the existing world. So um, as I've started to realize that, I've realized that I am exactly as the one is described. It's just that a lot of those descriptions are using an introverted sensor's perspective of like, well, the best way to do things is the way they're already done and follow all the rules. And my assumption is the best way to do things has not been figured out yet. And I'm going to test a lot of different things and try to find a lot of different ways of breaking the rules without getting in trouble because I am terrified all the time of getting in trouble. And I don't want anyone to ever think that I'm trying to break rules for my own sake. I only want people believing that I'm trying to make things better. And I'm always having an excuse for why things are, why I'm doing things the way I'm doing because I'm trying to perfect the system. And then I get like resentful and angry at the fact that like not everybody is working as hard as me to try to make this system perfect. And I always have this excuse in my head that like, if we don't make this, uh, if we don't do this right, if we don't do this the best possible way, if you guys don't follow my vision on how we should reform this, then the company's gonna go out of business and we're all gonna fail. Or like, you know, or like if I'm editing someone's piece, I see it as like, what is the essay that they're writing or the thing that they're creating? How do I see the, sh I can see sort of the theoretical shape of what they're doing or the song that someone's writing. I can see the theoretical, like perfect version of it. I can feel the direction that is an improvement toward perfection. And I can feel like the steps we need to start taking. I can kind of intuit in my gut, really, the steps that need to be taken and stuff sticks out to me in an essay, like cut that line, get rid of that word, the syntax is off. The sentence doesn't feel right. Read it out loud. You'll, it'll feel awful coming out of your mouth. Make it feel better coming out of your mouth. Then your essay is getting better. That stuff is like what makes me a really strong editor. Um, and I have uh, evidence of being good at that. You know, this one time I, I submitted an essay for a serious national award and I knew my essay was perfect. <laughs> like I knew it was perfect because I had worked on it into perfection. And I was literally like, the first sentence is perfect, and you can't stop reading until the end. So I was like, this is going to win. And it did win. 
you know, like the national newspapers wrote about it, international newspapers wrote about it, and it was a huge deal. Like, I got a lot of attention from that. This was a long time ago in a former life now. But all that is to say that, like, I did that by, you know, like, I, I've always just thought that that was just, like, how everyone writes, but I've started to realize, no, no, this is Enneagram 1 editing. This is me taking a hard, like, and and also I've like really upset people with my editorial approach I've realized because it turns out that people don't want that feedback they want to be told that their stuff is okay now luckily now I'm in a relationship with someone like my girlfriend who like really she's a great writer and she likes having real feedback and so it's one of the reasons she and I get along so well um but you know my ex who met me right when I was at that peak of like writing success and latched onto me for that reason as a narcissist to try to get attention because she wanted to be a writer when I was giving her feedback oh my gosh like it just destroyed her and I was so confused by that because I thought she wanted to be successful and I was like you well you have to write you have to do the work to be successful like and I realized that she just wasn't of the same caliber or in my mind that's where it was she was not of the same caliber of like uh she wasn't willing to do the work so okay I think that underneath the uh, Enneagram One's perfection drive is a f- philosophy about the world that working hard w- it should generate returns. And if it doesn't, that's not fair. And then my perspective is that like the world is not fair, so of course working hard won't always generate returns. But when people don't work hard and they get big returns, I see that as unfair. And when I see people work hard and not get big returns, I see that as unfair. But I also can't really understand how that happens because for me, anytime I work hard, I feel like I get good returns. They're psychological, sometimes monetary, but mostly psychological. And anytime that I take time off or relax, go on vacation, take a weekend off, I always get I always feel horrible for it. Like, I hate vacations. I hate them. I never feel recharged. I always feel worse. I just hate it. So, these, but I've realized reading, these are Enneagram 1 problems. And uh, it's like, you know, they just apparently are very uh, workaholic and don't like to, you know, don't like to take breaks and all this stuff that's just always been true about me. So, anyway, when my ex used to, like, yell at me to to come home from work and stuff i i hated so bad that she wanted me to stop working but what what i really resented was that she seemed to think that i should be getting paid so highly without doing hard work because she seemed to think that now that i had secured like a six-figure salary that it was now my job to come to like work as little as possible while keeping the salary which was not my understanding of what I had committed to do. My understanding was that I'd committed to work as hard as possible to get the salary, you know? So, so that's the kind of like Enneagram one thinking that's kind of run my professional life is this idea that like, you know, um, I'm making this commitment and that if people under commit or they underwork, that they are doing something really wrong and I resent them for it. And so when people on my team aren't working hard enough or whatever, I get like really, I do really resent them for it. And I'm also confused. Like, I don't understand how they, 
justify taking the money from the company and not working hard, you know? And this has gotten me into trouble. I, like, blew up a company basically once. Well, not that's not true. They were already failing. But I went to the... I went over my boss's head, and I ended up getting fired, of course. But because I was like, we're, we're stealing money from, like, the investors here. Like, this is not right. We're wasting their money. Um, and it's not right, you know? It's... And, like... And I, I was, like... I was within some ethical bounds correct about that. Um, like, I remember this one guy telling me, like, a few years later, he's like, wow, you were actually right about that. Like, after someone was being investigated by the FBI, and I was like, oh, wait, like, you guys didn't know I was right about that at the time? I mean, I knew that people were pissed that I did it, but I thought you all certainly must have known that, like, I was right, like, that they that shit really was going down that was, like, wrong. But I... But I realize now that, like, no, people thought I was just doing some personal power move. They didn't understand that I was, like, actually trying to fix what I saw as a, like, huge moral problem. That we were taking millions of dollars from investors and lying to them. Like, I was not, you know, like, I had a problem with that. Whereas other people are like, well, they're venture capitalists, so who cares, you know? And I'm like, no, 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 no. That, that's... I respect the fact that someone saved their money and then is continuing to make decisions with their money that enable them to invest in my group to, in, to try to build something because we don't have the money. Like, I respect that. I don't understand why nobody respects that. So there's these, like, this is all Enneagram One stuff, I think. I think that Enneagram One respects, is more conservative and, and respects authority because we see authority and wealth. We tend to ascribe hard work to it and that may not be true by the way like it might not be true at all the venture capitalists might be um con men they might have earned their money by stealing it from old women for all i know right so i inherently give them a lot of credit just for being wealthy i give them the credit that i assume they should get because they're wealthy i ascribe a certain amount of hard work to them and I mean, I, I'm, I think I'm right about this all the time. Like right now when I'm talking, I still think I'm like, I do think it's true. Like I've never met a wealthy person who doesn't work hard. I just haven't. But I've met a lot of poor people who talk about wealthy people having it easy. I've never met a wealthy person who really has it easy. And I've worked in, um, during the pandemic, in a grocery store. And I've worked at Six Figures. And I can tell you that it's a lot easier working in a grocery store. You know. So anyway, um, all that said... Uh, I think, uh, yeah, I, I think, um, I think I suddenly feel totally exhausted. I suddenly feel hyper-conscious of the fact that I've been rambling at my phone now for half an hour. Man. I'm really, like, not on drugs or anything. Um. 39 minutes. Wow. So, the 
argument that I've been making here is that I'm an ENTP Enneagram 1. I don't know of anyone on the internet who typically thinks of ENTP as fitting into that bucket, but I'm convinced that that's what I am. It makes so much sense. Uh, as I've read it more and more, everything fits. There are a lot of descriptions that are in terms of introverted sensing, and you have to kind of recast them in terms of extroverted intuition. An introverted sensor is going to look inside themselves and inside the past for like the correct answers. An extroverted intuitive is going to look out into the world and into the future and into theoretical possibilities for the best possible solutions. They're going to have an interest in solving different kinds of problems and introverted sensor is going to be interested in perfecting a process that's very simple. And extroverted intuition is going to be interested in perfecting a complex system that's very complex. And with an understanding of how systems work, they're going to have a perspective about what perfection looks like and what reformation looks like that is going to be more maybe nuanced, m more complex over time um, than an introvert sensor might have. Um, and so it's going to be almost like, it's, I mean, it's a very different looking type of approach to perfection. But it's still the same fixation with and the same resentment, the same fixation, the same anger at the huge imbalance. When you stack up the reality against the ideal, it's an, it causes anger. And when you see people doing things that you feel like are causing that imbalance between, you know, how things could be and how they are, it makes you angry. And, and then you feel resentful when you see people, um, settling for less than perfect and being rewarded for it and then you can feel resentful when you start to realize that that's what most successful people actually are doing is they're just taking action they're not taking perfect action and then you can feel resentful about that because you're 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 self-righteously thinking that you're trying to get you're trying to make things perfect and that when you see say an entj just basically like just bulldozing through stuff and doing the most stupid shit and then winning because ENTJs don't care about getting anything right at all. They only care about winning. And then you realize like, oh, that's how you be more successful. Then you resent that that's how the game works because you're like, I thought the game was based on theoretical perfection. And it turns out it's actually just based on doing better than, you know, just kind of like, like I've come to realize lately that like motion and decision and making a decision and moving is more correlative to success than doing the right thing or making the right decision. And I resent that because I was, because I want to delude myself into believing that I care about doing the right thing and doing things right and building the best system because it's the way to succeed. But the truth is, I care about doing things right and building the best system because I'm neurotically fixated on perfection like a fucking Enneagram one, not because it's the, and, and when it turns out that I learned that that's not the way to be successful, I resent it, you see? So the Enneagram one path to growth is to, um, is to tone it down. And this is exactly what my really intuitive friends who don't follow Enneagram stuff and who've been on the same train with me saying Enneagram is kind of not as good as Myers-Briggs, what they've like prescribed for me is to do stuff at 70%. That's what they've prescribed to me. And I found that to be a really challenging and really effective means of growth. 
to, and that's really the same advice that I'm finding for Enneagram ones is like, just don't do it. Don't, don't aim for a hundred percent, aim for 60%. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so like uncomfortable. It's not to say that I do things at a hundred percent, but I end up obviously procrastinating a lot of things, not doing them, running away from things, doing zero instead of 60%. So the thing about doing something at 60 or 70% is it's really saying as an alternative to aiming for 100 and either doing 100 or doing zero, aim for 60 or 70 and do 60 or 70%. The other like really exciting thing that I've discovered in the Enneagram is for the first time I've started to understand recently that this body type the body center wisdom of the eight, nine, and one, I'm starting to understand it. And I'm starting to realize that that's true for me. And I'm starting to understand certain things about myself as a body type Enneagram one that I haven't quite been able to understand as an ENTP. And the reason I've continued to kind of look around for explanations is because I am a lot different from other ENTPs but I am kind of so obviously an ENTP. And one of the things that's different about me um, is, and my girlfriend's pointed this out, she's an INFJ and she's pointed out how highly attuned I am to other people's state of being. And I've always thought like, well, this is extroverted intuition, but it's true that a lot of other ENTPs are not attuned to that. So like I will, point out I'll be like to my girlfriend I'll say hey like what's going on you know I can notice when her her tone of voice is different or when she's upset or whatever not and she's not really upset at me we don't really fight but and she'll be like she's discovered that I noticed that about her before she notices it about herself and it's almost but I'm not an empath like uh or I never consider myself that like I'm not empathetic I don't care about other people's feelings I really only care about them as they like I've noticed that it's an important data point I don't I don't emotionally care if someone's like sad. I don't feel sad with them or anything, but I do see it. I, I see it really quickly and really early. And, um, and, uh, I've never known that about myself until my girlfriend pointed it out to me because it's not something that I take pride in. You know, there's all those people on the internet. A lot of them are just honestly stupid. Like, Frankly, I have to say a lot of ENFPs, and they are pretty good at reading people, but they're like, I'm an introvert and I am an empath and I'm a hypersensitive individual. And I'm like, ugh, just, I'm sorry. I don't know. I find that really annoying because I don't think it's true for most of them. I think most of those people are um, just extroverted intuitives and they're noticing a lot of stuff and they are noticing a lot of their own sensations and their own things and they're ascribing them to other people, but I don't know. But I have this tendency to pick up on other people's emotional experience at a very, very like significant level. And like I said, I don't care about it. I don't, I don't like empathize and think like, oh no, it's more like I have a violent reaction to it. So I have a clinch in my body in reaction to their, to them, or I feel like I know, like a, a kind of a, an interesting example of this is, I kind of know when women are interested in me with a very high degree of accuracy. I've very, very rarely been wrong about that, and that's interesting because um, 
Because a lot, of, a lot of people don't. A lot of people are like kind of blind to that. But, f- but for me, especially as a guy who's not particularly attractive, like I'm not, I'm not physically um, a looker. Um, I'm fine. I'm, I'm right in that range of like, uh, I'm probably like a six, six and a half on a one to ten scale. For most women, um, I'm good enough looking that if I had money, they'd date me. <laughs> Um, and I'm not bad enough looking to repulse anybody. So, but I can tell when women are interested in me, um, I can feel it very, very clearly and I can tell when they're not, you know? So, and I'm able to very objectively sense what other people are feeling, um, whether it's good for me or bad for me. And and the reason I'm, I'm pointing out that I don't take a ton of pride in this is to say, like, I'm not overly confident in it. I'm not saying I'm great at this. I'm just, I've just noticed it. As my girlfriend's pointed it out about our relationship, I've noticed it more and more elsewhere. And um, m- one of my good friends who's a guy is an INFJ as well, and he also points out to me how good I am at evaluating certain things in sort of like a negotiation way, like when we're, like, talking about business stuff. And like he was helping negotiate a contract for me to do some work for him, for his boss. And I was like, well, I'm assuming you guys are willing to pay about this much. I would like to get paid this much. I think we could probably come to a, I basically did both halves of the negotiation. And he was like, yeah, this is literally exactly the numbers that he talked about. And that's like the third time that kind of things happened with me and him where I'm like giving him advice about his own work. I'm like, you should probably be able to get this much money, da, da 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 he'll probably tell you this. So there's sort of like an like a like a introverted thinking or like a thinker's like um empathy there where I understand the the way that people value certain things and I understand what it's gonna cost. I'm good at that. Um and uh so there's this kind of precision in my estimation of things is what I would describe it as. Um and I'm a good estimator. You know, if you give me two big numbers to multiply together, like 72 and 44, my brain's pretty good at being like 2,800 or whatever. Um, and, and doing it with a reasonable accuracy. I don't know, 72 times 44, 3168. But my brain's good at getting to like the, you know, the ballpark. Um, so anyway, um, the, uh, so I was off. What am I off by? Ten percent there. Twenty eight hundred. Thirteen percent. So um, I only have ten more minutes of this nonsense garbage. Whew. Gonna, I wonder if I should listen back to this or if it'll make me sick. Anyway, um. So Enneagram 1 helps actually explain this stuff because the body types have a, a sense, like a gut knowing. And as I've been realizing, I'm like, I, uh, I have that gut knowing with a lot, a lot of stuff that I never trust because I don't understand what it is. I think I've sort of abused that part of myself. Um... And it's so certain and it's so strong that I absolutely suppress it. And it really has a lot of anger in it. There's almost like, it's almost kind of like I notice when people are wrong about something and I feel immediate anger. 
And I noticed my autistic son will have the same reaction to people. And that's why I was always able to predict his tantrums because they would happen immediately following like my ex, his mom doing something wrong that was like wrong. She was doing something wrong, but it was very subtle. And I would have this feeling of like clenched anger that would surprise me. And I I wouldn't even really notice it because it was so normal. And then he would have a meltdown right then in the other room or like away from her like she wasn't interacting with him and then she gets so mad at him about why he was melting down but i started to realize like oh i want to melt down right now too this is because of what she did the way she shut that door or the energy that she's bringing into the room that triggered in him an attack of like anger and panic just like it did in me and i started noticing oh he's gonna have a meltdown like when i would feel it i'd look over at him and watch the meltdown start to happen so i realized that there's like this physical i was like oh that physical sensation in me is something that he's you know he's experiencing some kind of a signal similar to that and you know for all i know he was responding to me i mean i don't know i'm not like from a psychoanalytical perspective i think he was just in touch with like the shadow of ugliness in our family um, he's an extroverted intuitive as well. He's an ENFP. And um, and all that is to say that like, and, and I would say that as an ENFP, he's probably a, he could very well be like a type nine. And as an autistic kid, he's had a hard time sort of suppressing his anger and such. But he's really, really a peacemaking kid that people just adore. And I feel like he's really going to succeed as a adult. <clears throat> but um, he could be a body type as well, for sure. So anyway, so the Enneagram says that I need to pay a little more attention to like what my body needs, like listen to it, follow its impulses a little bit more, be a little worse, make worse choices, do worse stuff, do things 20% worse, be 20% bad so that I'm not 100% bad, you know? And that all fits for me because, yeah, so... <laughs> Anyway, man, it's not really a tarot reading, is it? But an introduction to my more, uh, a more rigorous perspective on my, uh, the ENTP Enneagram 1 overlap.